It's time to get on the ice. Music City Gold is on the air. With Kyle Hancock, Daniel Mangrum, and Matt Bain. We are Smashville's best fan-driven podcast. Featuring news around the league, the Predators, and the occasional hot take or two. Powered by the Ingram Agency. You're listening to Music City Gold on Penalty Box Radio. And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Music City Gold on Penalty Box Radio. I'm Kyle. With me, as always, is Daniel and Matt. Hello. Hey, guys. A little up more beat today, Matt. That's right. It's playoff hockey, Kyle. I thought it was because you got your fun hat on. I, I do have that as well. It's backwards. So that's how you know it's a fun day for Matt. It might be a fun day for you, but it's not a fun day for me because it's hot outside already. It has turned up the heat yes. quite substantially here in the Nashville area. 84 degrees right now. And it is 6.56. So it is only going to get hotter from here on out yeah. in the year, unfortunately, until we all melt into small little puddles by the time summer actually rolls around. And do you have a AC in your car now? Or no, no. No. Oh, man. That has to suck. Thankfully, though, your commute's not that bad. That's true. But still, I bet in the afternoon, once you get into the car, it's just blazing. Yeah. You not should at least me. get one of those sunshades put over your uh, windshield. That's a good idea, or I could just get a car that has AC. But how much is that going to set you back? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. that's on the to-do list here. That's going to be practically just stripping clothes on the way home because I, I can't imagine. Yeah, it's one of those things, you know, I'm kind of a penny pincher. I don't like to spend money, but there's a little bit of a shame factor that goes in. I'm sitting here melting on the way home, and so, I, yeah, I don't know. Well, I know you're a penny pitcher because I finally gave you that six dollars I owed you. <laughs> was it a dollar I owed you for the pizza when Chelsea was down here, and then the five dollars from the bet I finally paid up on. That's right. Thank yep. you. So got five on the table here too for the bracket, but it's not looking too good for you guys. So yeah, my uh, bracket. We're uh, before the show we were going through and checking our brackets, and I was just like, yeah, there's no use. I mean, we should have done the second chance challenge. That's honestly what we should have done, but whatever. I'm gonna stick with the original. It was a terrible year, but. We're going to roll with it. I think out of three of us, you're actually the one leading us, Daniel. Nope. Technically, no, but Matt. I have the highest possible points left on the table. So, take yeah, that I'm, for what I'm worth. leading, but I've maxed out my possible points. Daniel still has a possibility to ride the blues for some more points. Oh, yeah. But how does your wife feel? Because she picked hers at random, and she may beat us. That That is possible. If the Sharks uh, go on to the finals and possibly win, she's got to win the finals. And if happen, <laughs> if by chance she by wins. By chance you mean. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> we'll we'll talk about that in great detail later. But, yes. Um, boy, they are uh, one lucky team right now. So I'll just put it like that. I think I really need to go to Vegas and put some money down on them. Uh, let me tell you, I, I can't imagine some of the odd swings on some of these games. So think they're well connected with the mafia because they know a guy he's got to pay a guy off Sleeping with the fishes. that's a really good movie we need to watch that again yes have you seen all three of them no you saw the first one though right yeah finally i saw the first one <laughs> finally yeah he i'm not only, a movie guy he only saw one yeah. <laughs> in a three-part series of one of the most famous i got the movie series of, of all time okay cool but speaking of Godfather movies and all that, let's get into our Eastern Conference series. So it is the Carolina Hurricanes, who are down 3-0 to the Boston Bruins. Oh, man. And as we are recording this episode, they're actually playing game four. And the funny thing is, it is very well possible that tonight the Hurricanes could get swept after sweeping the Islanders, who swept the Penguins. That's crazy. Triple sweep, baby. It's like... Sweep the leg, Johnny. This half of the bracket, it's it's all sweeps. It's one team crush, and then the other side, you go to the West, and it's like arduous OT, you know. Bad it, call. <laughs> that, that, plenty of that as well. There's total action on both sides, but it seems to be opposite. One is totally the opposite way to the other. And this is a series that, on paper, looked kind of even. So going into this series last week, Carolina was coming out with around 3.09 goals a game. Boston's at 3.08. And... Carolina was expected an average of 2.82 goals. Boston had the edge at 3.14 goals a game. Shots were 31-35 in favor of Boston for the two series for the series as a whole. Slot shots was kind of even 13.2 to 14.6 on this preview. And the other real kicker was goaltending. Carolina was, was coming in with a .918 save percentage, while Boston Tukaras was coming in at a .936. Yeah, the stats look kind of good coming into game one, but 
as the game one progressed, we found out that Boston came on top early and managed to get the win 5-2 pretty handily here in game one. Seemed to be a bit of a statement they made here against Carolina. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest factor for them in this game was obviously power play goals. You, you got to look at their power play right now is operating at 31.9% through the playoffs. How incredible is that number? <laughs> I mean, uh, they were kicking. So this first game, you actually have two power play goals by um, Johansson and Bergeron. The problem was Carolina was taking way too many penalties, I felt. And that seems to be a theme that's going to keep going as the series progresses. But Carolina actually has been the best 5v5 team this postseason. So their strength is playing is even strength hockey. But like you said, when you take penalties against a dangerous Boston Bruins team, that's just enough to cost you the game right there. And that's clearly what happened here. Yeah, and uh, they even were more physical than the Bruins. They had 35 hits compared to the 24, but yet again, they were able to outlast. And to be quite honest, Tuka Rask has actually played fantastic so far in, oh, yeah. in this first game and in the whole series as, as well. He's actually been extremely solid. I saw a uh, – it was a poll. I think the point did it, and they said, who is your Con Smythe? Uh, vote getter right now and I guess the top two because it's pretty easy it's going to be Tuka Rask is the number one guy that people think and then Logan Couture are the top two leading uh, finalists for the Conn Smythe it seems so far I know this is just a straw poll but it's pretty obvious to see how it's going to go and Tuka Rask has been on top of his game for sure well stats back it up he has 11 wins already he has a .939 save percentage and his goals against is 1.96, a sub-2 in the postseason. That is fantastic. He also actually now has the third lowest uh, goals against average on the road in NHL history in the postseason with 2.02. So on top of his game, man, it would not surprise me. He's going to carry the Bruins on his back the whole way here, and it really wouldn't surprise me uh, if they win the Cup again. Well, if you look at Rask's shots on goals – He's had 10 go high blocker side. He's had eight high glove side. That's been the standard, basically, for goalies in the playoffs is shoot high. Yeah. And, you know, he's got three on the low blocker, five in the five hole, and six on the low glove side. So he's doing really well. And like you said, Daniel, .939 save percentage, 1.966 expected goals against. He is killing it. And this team, I think Boston would be done if they didn't have Rask in net. You know, it's interesting because, especially here in game one, Carolina gets on the board early, and I see them creating a lot of turnovers and uh, rush chances. They're, they're getting pucks in, in the neutral zone to get turned over. Whenever they get shut down, they get shut down hard, and Rask is a force to be reckoned with. It just seems that their scoring can't quite match that of the Bruins, and that really speaks to just assuming the offense is equal on both sides. Rask elevates his game higher than Mrazek and stops Carolina from scoring anymore. Once they once they get the momentum stopped from Carolina, then they really seem to put a stranglehold on them, and, and they have their uh, they play their game, and they come out on top here. And then going into game two, you would think Carolina's going to make the um, adjustments and come back and respond, and they come back and get crushed again in a 6-2 loss. Bro, they got scored six straight on. And on top of it, they even took less penalties in the first game, but Boston capitalized on both of them. Two for two on the power play tonight, 100% on the power play. They, they are killing it. You cannot give them anything on that power play right now. And if you look at the slot shots, Carolina did a terrible job of protecting the slot. They gave Boston 18 chances to take shots in the slot compared with their nine. Poor Morazic, he was sporting a .76 well, tonight. Here's the I thing. I mean, that, that's pretty bad. You can assume that the talent on both teams are about equal. We talk about how much this is a mental game. And the first goal that goes in is Mrazeklitz and a very weak trickler goal that I don't even think hits the back in the net. And that just seemed to the feeling on the ice was that it just deflated the team mentally. You can't go down and have those kind of weak errors against such a strong team. And I just feel like they couldn't hang with the Bruins after that. They they got defeated mentally, that weak goal. And Mrazek's kind of iffy in that. He was, he's been kind of hot, but then you'll see in the, in the next couple of games he's starting to really cool off. And that's not good for the confidence, especially for goaltenders. Confidence is a big deal coming into the postseason. And at this point, Boston, you know, they're on a four-game streak. They've been outscoring their opponents 15-6 to in the first period. Carolina, to my knowledge, only had one scoring chance in the first period. Yeah, it was it was basically shutdown mode for them. I mean, they, they had no chances, basically, in and the first. another theme you're going to see is that 
Justin Williams takes a penalty uh, in the first period, I think oh it was. My. It was a necessary penalty, yes. but the Bruins score six seconds in on the power play, and that's just what happens again, uh, when you do that against the Bruins. They now had 10 unanswered goals after uh, the game becomes 6-0. to zero. So uh-huh. they dominated, and that's the thing you're going to start seeing. Carolina gets very frustrated easily, and Justin Williams really – I feel like is the this deciding factor here for Carolina. He's been getting hot headed. I think we'll talk about another game. He took like three penalties and one in the first period. Well, well, hold on. But what spurred him to be so upset in game three? Oh, oh, let's, yeah. Let's 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 not forget. Like to be honest, Justin Williams very cool, calm, collective, and I'm pretty confident if this happened to me. Oh, yeah. I probably would be feeling the same exact react like the same way that Justin. That Williams. was that was this game actually. Later this game yeah, is the, when because in my notes baby. in my notes I have Brad Marchand as an a hole, and that was because I think you guys have probably seen the clips on it at home. If you if you have, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, Marchand basically hooks Justin Williams in the neck. It's like a decapitation. <laughs> I mean, and, and here's the deal, like. People are like, oh, oh, but Justin Williams like caught it with his hand. First of all, if someone's coming at your neck with a stick, you're putting your hand up trying to block it. And two, Meyer Shan was already like high stick mode as he was coming in. Like that's the thing. Like if you back the clip, because I saw several Bruins fans like take a screenshot where like the stick was resting on his shoulder and he was holding it. And I'm like, yeah, because he was flying in with his stick literally neck level. Like. What are you going to do? Like, how are you going to react to that? And that didn't even get called on the ice. What got called was what, Justin Williams. Justin Williams barely pushed back. Yeah. <laughs> and so Brad Marchand taunting him as Justin Williams is heading off to the box. He puts a C on his chest saying, that's that's what you're going to do for your team. You're the captain, and you're sitting here taking penalties. So he was really good at taunting Justin Williams. And that's the way, another way to get in the head of the players, and especially the captain of this team. He's so a master of it. He, he's, he's really great. Master. I, he's he's awesome. I mean, he's a bit of a jerk, but he really can get under your skin. And that's the way Bruins play, man. They play that rough uh, grit hockey. Well, thankfully this year, he's not licking anybody. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's true. I, I mean, but it's just, I don't know, seeing his track record and then seeing him trying to like knock out one of the premier players in our time for the game is you don't want to see that obviously you don't want people injured and I, I mean even earlier in the playoffs you forget the the head punch you know hit and run you know and it's just one of those things like he doesn't care and like the, the league is just basically they've just turned you know blind eye and they're just just gonna let him go for the playoffs because I, I don't know what else he's got to do to maybe get a game but um, it's annoying because you would think about this any other player does this during the season, except for a few notables, for example, Crosby or Ovechkin, they're going to get called for it. But you got those few players, including Marchand, that seem to be able to just get away with whatever they want. Yeah, I, I mean, look at Forsberg's butt check. He got a couple games for a butt check, and Marchand gets nothing. He did. Marchand didn't even get a penalty for almost decapping somebody. So, you know, it's just that's just how it is right now. <laughs> And that seemed to be kind of the way this game went. Uh, Bruins came out on top, and they just dominated this game. After the game, uh, Coach Brendan Moore had a few words to say. He said, it's it's not good enough to make the playoffs. Who cares? Uh, that's not the goal. This is awesome, and we're happy to be where we are. But it's not the finish line. So he's trying to get his players in their mindset, hey, we're, we're on the road, by the way. You know, the game's not over. The series isn't over just because you lose on the road. It's okay just as long as you don't lose at home. And by the way – the Canes are 5-0 and at home this postseason. So they lose two games in Boston, and they try to get their attitude in check and come back home and start putting the business into the stick on the ice and get things done. So let's go ahead and go into game three, guys. Where now they are not 5-0. and They're now 5-1. and Because, unfortunately, even though they gave it a good try, they were one goal short, and Boston has a 3-0 lead. And like we said at the start of the show, tonight's possibly the last game the Hurricanes could play. And this this is a tough game if you're a Carolina Hurricanes fan because they were the better team in this one. Oh, absolutely. And Rask stole the game. But that's unfortunate because, as Matt alluded to earlier, Rask is putting up incredible numbers on the road. And he comes out and pitches just like an absolute gem of a game here. You're talking about .972 save percentage with 32 shots on goal. And they had five rush scoring chances and 19 slot shots. Yeah. And he only lets in one goal. Yeah. That's a good night. 
and the goalkeeper stood on his head and stole a game on the road. The Bruins were fortunate to win, but when you're playing with elite talent in the playoffs and you're already down 2-0, that's the, that's the risk you're taking. Because, I, I mean, it, it just is what it is and unfortunate for Carolina because they should have won that game. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Carolina's goaltending. After getting torched in Game 2, the thought was, are they going to pull Mrazek? They never mm-hmm. pulled Mrazek. They just let him sit there the rest of the game. And I kind of felt, man, give this guy a mercy call. Let, let the backup come in. Let McElhaney come in here and, and try to save myself, I don't know, a little bit of pride. But they did make the decision in Game 3 to go to McElhaney, and that was fine because he's had comparable numbers uh, to Mrazek and maybe slightly better. So at least give him a try. See if he has the magic touch to uh, – what it, to see what it takes to stop the Bruins, and uh, unfortunately he couldn't quite do it. Yeah, it was a it was a goaltender, you know, duel kind of the whole night. He actually had a .935, which and yeah. on the night of the night that's a fantastic save percentage. But unfortunately, the other goalie was just having a slightly better night. Yeah, and I mean it was a great goaltending duel to watch. Even if McElhaney did such a great job, here's the problem though. Boston had such an ability to penetrate the uh, Carolina defense. Actually, 10 of their 12 goals this series have been from the inner slot. So they found a way to get down and dirty, and where it's obviously harder to stop the puck, even if you can make the easy ones, they make it to the inner slot where the goals come at a much higher rate. And they found a way to do that, to do what it takes to get into those areas so they can have such a success rate against even a, a goaltender like McElhaney and Mrazic, who have been successful lately. And it seems like tonight, I was checking the stats of the game, McElhaney is back in for game four. I know the game is just starting, I think, right now, but that's that's good. That's what I want to see. It's interesting to note that teams that have a 3-0 series lead uh, all-time have a 98% chance to win the series. Yeah, it's not But really Justin Williams has come back from down 3-0 to zero before in the series and won. So it will be quite a juxtaposition to see, do you want the stats or do you want the guy who's done it before? It all comes down to game four here tonight, guys. So what happens, though, if Boston, you know, tomorrow you guys will be listening to this and, you know, this will be in the past. That's one of the hard things about recording during the playoffs. Things happen so fast. But if Boston does sweep the Hurricanes and make it to the finals, whoever wins in the series between San Jose and the Blues do you think the that Western opponent can also sweep the Bruins? What looks good on paper has not happened this playoff. So Bruins are by far the best team right now. But I said Carolina was the best team coming into this round. And they are about to get swept probably. Yeah, so but the team before that got swept. Exactly. The team before that got swept. It so doesn't make like, sense. I can't say who's the better team because it doesn't matter. I think this has been the most unpredictable playoffs I have witnessed myself personally. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about crazy momentum swings. You're talking about favorites going down, all the underdogs basically making it. And then on top of it, which we'll get into later, you have all the calls that are also swaying games. Like These these aren't like minuscule moments. These are actually changing series yeah. outcomes. Like I'm talking like two game sevens, which <laughs> will break down for the Sharks, and then another one that happened last night. So this playoff... I mean, if you're a fan, it's been interesting. But at the same time, you kind of take it with a grain of salt because there have been so many ups and downs and just terrible calls that you don't want to see. And since you're talking about bad calls, that's a good time to flip over to the West where, like I said before, I should really go to Vegas and put money down because all the bad calls that have helped the Sharks get to the position they're in, I could be making a nice little profit right now. Let's let's just be honest. I, I, I have no dog in this fight. Actually, here, here's the deal. I really like San Jose, so I know Matt does too. But if you look at the progression through the playoffs, this is one lucky team, guys. Let, let me tell you. This is, I, I mean, it's almost impressive. They've been on the right side of the officiating calls every single crucial moment in the playoffs. So let's just go all the way back to see how we got to the Blues <laughs> and the, the Sharks in the Western Conference Finals. So, Game 7, Golden Knights. Five-minute major call. <laughs> You're shaking your head right now. Pretty rough call with only 10 minutes left, and given the circumstances and the review that we saw, it's kind of like, don't really understand it. I don't, you know, it's we've already been over this once before. Shame on the Golden Knights for letting in four straight goals on their PK, but at the same time, 
huge momentum shift yeah. because of a call that the refs made. Even to the point that the NHL went to the Golden Knights and said, we're sorry. But it's like, what it's does it matter? Fact. What your, does it matter? Your already out of the playoffs. Okay, so. Your bad officiating led to the Golden Knights getting bounced in the game seven. Now, to be fair, the, the NHL did their best that they could after the fact, since you know they weren't going to change the results. They took that officiating crew and said, you're not making it. Well, they're not going to have any officials by the end of the playoffs, let me tell you, because it's not getting any better. And then we get on to San Jose and the Avalanche. It goes a distance in the game seven. And then you've got that controversial Landeskog call where he was changing. Yeah, yeah. and it's a game-tying goal, too. So it's also another significant point in the in the game. This would have sent it into overtime. Which Anything is Anything can happen. But at the same part, I, I, we looked at the video right before this because like Matt needed a refresher on it. And we started chuckling because <laughs> we're like, if you look at the review, it might be splitting hairs, but at the same time, like Landeskog was going off. Someone was coming on. There's like a little bit of a grace period there. And on top of it, like he's going off the ice. Like he's not even charging the zone. Like yeah. the, the player who was taking him, his place was charging towards the center of the ice away from the line actually itself. I, I mean, if you look at the play just in real time, it does not look like it offsides by a mile. But because of that small little hair of a, you know, oh, it, it's so hard to see because it also, too, gets called back and you're also changing what could be potentially the outcome of another series in a yeah. game seven. Two, two in a row. That's the second round. Uh, no, first round and second round matchup. And then we're going to get into the third round where another big call changes the outcome of OT. It just seems to get worse and worse. And we, we saw it, you know, what was it, two years ago with the Preds? It seems like every year there's a big story, and this has been like two or three or four stories. It just, it's not getting any better, guys. One thing I saw on Twitter about this whole thing, because I was getting ready to go to bed last night, and I just happened to turn the game on just to watch the end of it, and I was like, bro, holy crap. I'm like, what a time to turn on. And so I immediately mm -hmm. go to Twitter, and, of course, all the hockey personalities from all over the league, even teams that are not even in anymore, we're just freaking out because they're like, are you serious? Because you see Timo have a definite hand pass and nobody sees it. <laughs> and as Daniel said, Magical. Daniel said, as soon as they call the goal, the refs just go, nope, and leave. Yeah, I, I don't know. If, did, did you actually watch the Yeah, yeah game? I was watching it. It almost was mind-boggling how it happened. You know, they have their little huddle and like St. Louis is literally just losing their mind, rightfully so, because it was in clear. In fact, the funny part is they start playing the replay on the yeah, Jumbotron. Yeah, on the Jumbotron in front of the fans. Which is like even more insult to injury because the fans are yep. actually getting a review right now. Yep. And then they're not going to go review it because, you know, that's the rule. So yep. here's the deal. I'm just going to play, play into this one. So in my opinion, yes, they missed the call. Totally missed it. Refs should be taking the blame for that. But refs do miss calls. Yeah, they're that happens. So, why do we have video replay? To get the call right. Yeah, exactly. Like, and what frustrated me more than anything was, you know, the refs, I don't blame them because they couldn't review it. That's a rule. So, they go, you know, we're, we're done. It's a goal. But the, the craziest thing was how they left the ice. They're just like, peace out, guys. Open the mansion over there, and they literally just walked out the ice, did not even turn on the mic to give an explanation to the crowd. I mean, that would have been, that would have at least been something. Yeah. I, I mean, it was rough to watch. If you're a Blues fan, you are literally freaking out. I feel bad for you. This is a terrible call. But at the same time, I, I don't know how many more bad calls like this have to happen where the league changes something like having like an off ice officiating crew to review stuff too. I, I don't know. It's just, it's mind boggling. So this evening when I was going through Twitter, just kind of refreshing for tonight, Bob McKenzie quote tweets, a Twitter called CHC referees, which stands for Connecticut hockey referees. And they were talking about quote, how could four officials miss the hand pass in that overtime game? And they said, if everyone's doing their job properly, there's many ways they can miss it. And so they go through a quick little spiel here. They talk about the ref, who they call the low ref, who is by the goal. They said before the hand pass, Myers has gained the zone. And after the quick cut across that he took, puts a shot on net. That shot showing the moment was blocked. 
the ref's in position to see it. They said then he goes behind the goal line because based on the trajectory of the puck, that's where it's going to go. So he goes behind it. Then the hand pass happens. They said now all of a sudden he has two players, including the defender, the goalie, and the net blocking his view. So he's got no way of seeing it. And they said the high ref, who would be in near the near the center ice, is skating uh, figure eights to basically watch for infractions because he's the one that normally calls the penalty. And he's not watching the puck because he's looking for things that can impede play. And they said, well, what's the linesman? They said, the linesman don't ever call anything like that. And if they do, they've got to be crystal clear that they made the correct call. So they said, even if they are in the correct position, there are many ways they can miss it. Well, I'll actually cut the refs a break on not seeing something. I mean, he was kind of crouched over when it happened. I get not seeing it. But I think what everybody's mad at is the point that we have video evidence to substantiate what actually happened because just because the ref doesn't see an illegal play doesn't mean an illegal play didn't happen. And we found that out. The problem is the rules on the books say I can't change it, even though now we have a more perfect amount of information so we can get the right call. We're just not allowed to use that information. That that doesn't make any sense. So it really wouldn't surprise me if, if at the Board of Governors meeting this year they have this discussion because it's just a recurring theme. And also going back to the uh, Dallas series, I believe it was with uh, – St. Louis, where Ben Bishop falls down, he gets hit in the clavicle with a with a slap shot from uh, Pareko, I think it was, and he gets he gets he falls on the ice, he's hurt and he can't get back up. It's just like five seconds or so. It's a pretty substantial amount of time, and so the Blues go on to score, and there was no call made on the ice. Ben Bishop is clearly hurt. He's laying on the ice. Uh, obviously, you can score because there's no guy blocking the net, so they score, but the rules on the book say that they can't blow the whistle because uh, he didn't have his mask off or whatever. It just doesn't make any sense because you're not able to make the right call when you need to. As a matter of fact, uh, Greg Wyszynski on Twitter had a, had a back and forth with Kerry Fraser, a former re- uh, referee, on this exact issue. And Wyszynski said that the refs can stop play if they feel the injury is severe. But otherwise, when a player is injured so that he cannot continue play or go to the bench, the play shall not be stopped until the injured player's team has secured possession of the puck. But the problem with that is, well, obviously, uh, it's easy to stop play if I have the puck, but the point is they have the puck so they're going to score. That doesn't help me stop stop play. So if I had possession of the puck, I could obviously stop the scoring play. You see what I'm saying? But Kerry Frazier kind of uh, went back and forth with him and said that if Bishop's mask had came off or if he flipped it off, the whistle could have been blown with him down, uh, you know, if he was in obvious pain, unable to get up to defend his net. Uh, that's an absurd assumption and application of the playing rules on player protection, he says. So it seems to be some inconsistencies, at whether it be in the rule book or just the way the refs are interpreting these rules. Mm-hmm. Something needs to be reworked. So uh, hopefully we'll see a little bit of change going forward at least. Yeah, I, I just feel like we need some sort of concrete ruling on this in the off season because – you don't want to see these calls in the playoffs. Like, you don't want to see it in the regular season. But when you talk about a team that has had the first two rounds influenced by calls, and now, which we'll get into, a Western Conference final game is decided because of this. You don't want to see it. You don't want to see it. I mean, this goes back to, like you said, with the Preds in the finals, you know, the terrible call where – the, the ref lost sight of the puck even though he was in the wrong section and literally, like, the puck's still moving. Yeah. Like, it's one of those, man, we have replay. It's, it is mind-boggling the amount of technology we have nowadays. We, what, they were putting in puck-tracking technology in the, the All-Star game. If they want to do that type of thing, how about let's just get the plays right first? Like, that, that's, that, that's all I'm asking for. Just get the plays right. From what I've seen, a lot of the talking heads in hockey said that the NHL seems to be kind of hesitant because they don't want to turn to the NFL where every single thing is reviewable. And I'm like, you know what? I maybe can see that for the regular season, but during the playoffs, yeah, you got every, right. every goal should be reviewable no matter what. Yeah, I, I would be all for a playoff ruling where you get you can get a review from an off-ice officiating crew. Maybe a second pair of eyes just watching the game from cameras that it happens to be refs i mean what a novel idea and then they can phone down to the refs and say hey you missed one let's look at this really quick like i i think that's all it needs to be it doesn't have to be a long drawn out process and potentially it doesn't even have to be in the regular season but it it definitely needs to be in the playoffs 
Well, last thing I'll say before we get into the uh, San Jose St. Louis series, the situation room in Toronto does have the ability to change some things. I remember a game, Daniel, you and I were at, it may have been a playoff game where it looked like a goal had been scored, but the rest waved it off. And then a few minutes later, you heard a little bell sound down the rink and they stopped play. And it was Toronto calling down to Nashville saying that was a goal. Yeah, the puck actually crossed the line, which you want play to stop. You want that to be right because it happened. And then they re actually, it's funny because they reset the time too. And they kind of go back and start it when the goal was scored. But that's a prime example of what, if you can do it for that, you can do it for the playoffs in every situation, especially big time situations where it alters the course of the game. I, I mean, and like I said, just put a ref or two watching the game with, you know, all the awesome camera technology that we have in a room somewhere and j- just get it right. That's all I'm asking. Well, let's switch to uh, at least one bright note this postseason, and that has been Jordan Bennington for the. <laughs> Uh, St. Louis Blues. This was actually going into game one here with the Sharks. This was the first time Bennington has ever faced the Sharks. And against teams that he's only faced for the first time, he's got a 9-4-1 save percentage. And basically he's 21-3 going into game one against uh, teams he's never played. So how did that game one turn out, Kyle? Well, game one was a 6-3 win in favor of the Sharks. Even though Bennington has done really well, this is, like you said, the first time he's played the Sharks. So, you know, there's not really much you can do when it comes to terms like video video game footage, well, not video game footage, but just game footage and just, you know, watching them. But so in this game one, they were kind of even in terms of offensive zone possession. Sharks had five minutes and 42 seconds, while the Blues had five minutes and 10 seconds. Shots favored the Blues, 31-25. Slot shots favored the Blues, 15-12. Rush scoring chances were 6-7, favor of the Sharks. But as we all know, the score that really mattered at the end of the day was 6-3 in favor of the Sharks. Yeah, the Sharks were only one for four on the power play this night, so 25% still way better than the Preds, uh, sporting that zero still. I think any and team is better than the Preds, to be honest. I mean, really, the the story for the Sharks so far this year has been Logan Couture. I, I, I mean, he comes out in this first game, hangs two. Also, uh, I believe Meyer um, also has two. So two key pivotal players for the Sharks. All their stars are showing up now. They're firing on all cylinders, but – Man, has Logan Couture been on fire, as you said. Possible Conn Smythe winner this year with uh, Tuka Rask in the running. Yeah, he's actually leading the playoffs in points with 20, and I think he's leading the goal category as well with 14. So he's been a force to be reckoned with. But also, you know, who's been a little not a force to be reckoned with is Vladimir Tarasenko. Yep. Strangely I, quiet. I looked at some video footage. You know, they had a this exact uh, West Finals matchup was in 2016, and uh, they held Tarasenko to only two points in that series a couple years ago. So I think that's been a formula they're trying to replicate this series as well. And uh, I've seen footage of they actually had three guys on multiple occasions, three people step on Tarasenko just to keep him quiet. It kind of to take the uh, Maya approach to Ovi, like I say, put multiple bodies on the guy and find a way to shut that guy down. And I think really he's going to be a, a factor going into this series to see if he can light the lamp or not. Coming into this uh, series, he only had one goal on even strength, and but four on the power play. So we're going to see, of course, there's going to be plenty of penalties, but uh, that's a place where he's shining lately. Uh, Tarasenko is on the power play. So we need to try to keep it 5v5 if you're the Sharks here. I'll tell you one thing the Blues have had a terrible time with is they've been shooting themselves in the foot because most of the goals that they had and scored against in this series have been off turnovers. Yep. Coming into this series, they've almost had a goal a game scored against them off a turnover alone. And that's teams, uh, these are top five teams from the point of teams that have made the first round. Blues at .80, top of the list, and goals leading from a turnover. It's interesting to note the Sharks are .75. So, needless to say, this has been an odd man rush, like turnover, score series. It's been, I mean, it's been fun to watch, but... Um, not the best play, I will say, and definitely something that both teams will need to tighten up going into the finals, especially if it's against Boston. You don't want to give Boston any odd man rushes. Well, going into the game two, Blues take this one, even the series up four to two. Slot shots were twelve in favor of slot shots were twelve to eleven in favor of the Blues. Rush scoring chances again were very small, but they were in favor of the Sharks five three. And offensive possession time was favor of the Blues, 6 minutes and 49 seconds compared to 5.45. As you said, the Blues' problem this whole series has been they've been given turnovers. 
You know, I saw a stat that said that coming off of a loss, Bennington is like a nine three four save percentage. So I look for him to come out for whatever reason, got get a chip on his shoulder, and he came out. And uh, the Blues actually got on the board early. They scored two goals yeah, in the first period. And I noticed that it's interesting. This game, there was actually no power play goals. So how we said that playing even strength should probably favor San Jose a little bit. Uh, it didn't seem to go that way. We, Blues got on the board early, and that seemed to stick the whole game. They stayed on top. Yeah, Jordan Bennington actually had a .923 save percentage in this game. I thought he put up an incredible performance, especially on the road, uh, in the Shark Tank. This is a big bounce-back win to steal one on the road just to come home. Um, unfortunately, as we'll get to in Game 3, didn't quite work out that way. But what a great performance for him. He has literally been the talk of the playoffs as well, and the regular season, quite honestly, is a rookie. He's come in and taken yeah. the league by storm. Uh, will he always be like this? Who knows? Because it's, I mean, it, but it is very impressive what he's done in such a small sample size, and uh, kudos for him because he's been rock solid, something that the Blues were completely lacking at the first half of the year, thus making them the worst team in the NHL. Yeah, they by far have been the, like the most improved team in the second half. But you're talking about improvements and stuff like that. And, you know, I really couldn't think of a good way to move into this. But I just got to say, I still don't like Martin Jones. He's just terrible. I mean, 15 goals have been given up blocker side and 16 goals glove side. Here's the deal. They're scoring tons of goals. So he just has to hold the fort down, baby. That's all he needs right now. I mean, a .903 save percentage. And he's given up almost three goals a game. Well, they also, watching this game, the stats don't quite do it justice because in this game, we already mentioned it before, the Blues, I put in my notes that the Blues are great at causing turnovers in the D zone. What they're doing is they're finding a way to find those mismatches and they're creating space from the D-man. They're catching them on a crossover or a bad momentum one way or the other. They're, they're creating space from, from the uh, – D-man there and they're finding ways to turn over and this is leading to those huge scoring chances against Jones but especially going into the later half of this game going in third period this game went to overtime uh, game three here it actually Martin Jones made four or five saves that kept the Sharks in this game despite him having a lot of controversy and people think he sucks he really stood on his head and if it wasn't for him this game would not have made it to OT the funny thing is when you look at the Sharks you're thinking wow you've got really good offense pretty good defense you have subpar goaltending. Then you flip over and look at the Preds, for example. Superb goaltending, but very mediocre offense and defense. Yeah, it's it's kind of been a flip. Like During the playoffs, I didn't think the defense was too bad considering our goals against was fairly low. We were also playing a very low goals against team. But our offense, non-existent in the playoffs. And that's the difference with the Sharks. They're scoring five goals a game. So if you can score five goals a game, I'm feeling pretty confident that my goalie can at least you know, yeah. keep it at four, which, man, going into, into game three, you're, you're talking about a game that could sway either way. You're actually, the Blues are winning, by the way, in the third period. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and this is the most painful thing about it, is there is a ringer off the post with an empty net. He misses it. Yeah. And then guess what happens? That would have ended the game. Yes. And then a minute later, guess what happens? Empty net. They pull their guy. They get an extra attacker. Sure enough, guess who gets the goal? Logan Couture. Yep. And here we go into OT, which the game probably shouldn't have been in OT to begin with. But credit to the Sharks for being opportunistic. This was not given to them by a penalty, the league, or anything. This was their own doing. The Blues... Failed to capitalize on the empty net. But when we get to overtime, obviously the infamous hand pass goal is what decided this. And and that's super frustrating at this point because this game was very, very close. Razor thin on either side. And then the game is decided by this terrible no call. And then fans are just left to fume the entire night. And now San Jose gets a freebie on the road. And here's the deal. The Sharks might have won that game. They could have easily scored the next goal in OT, even if the goal was called back. So I, I think everyone is getting so upset about you know them losing. But at the same time, you got to remember, the Blues still have to score even if the goal is called back. 
because they failed to capitalize on the empty net. So in a lot of ways, this is still the Blues' fault for being in that position to lose Game Three. But you just the the problem is you can't go out with a loss like that. I would rather them get a good goal and the Blues go home and still lose this game than to have a very controversial goal and yeah. the game. But credit to the Sharks, they didn't capitalize in third and they jumped on them. One thing to credit the Blues for is how they were on top in the third period. The Blues coming in were 0 for 18 on the power play lately. Very reminiscent of the Predators. But what did they do this game? They're 0 for 18. They get a power play goal. That's what puts them on top. So that's one way, how we mentioned special teams all the time in the playoffs. They were ice cold, but they came in and they got it done to get on top. And they just, it was unfortunate, a missed opportunity at empty net. It would have ended the game. And it went the other way, and that's just how thin of a margin these are. Uh, it is in these games here in the playoffs. That said, this has been an incredible series. Going, you know, I mean, granted, we'll take away that last call, but I am very interested in the next games moving forward. Obviously, we have a game four playing out right now, where the uh, Carolina Hurricanes and Boston are tied up at zero zero in the first. We'll be keeping you updated on that because that game could be potentially in the second by the time we finish this episode. But overall, pretty excited for the finals. I'm ready. I get, get me a couple games where I can just sit on the couch and watch the best hockey of the year. So uh, I'm excited for it. You mean you don't want to watch the Ice Hockey World Championships? You know, if it were in my TV package, I would. But it is blocked out, and it has been frustrating every night because I've seen it, and it is there, and I want to watch it. But... Predators are actually representing quite well in the playoffs so far. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that Kyle Turris had been selected as captain of Team Canada. Captain Kyle. And he's yeah. actually had a pretty good game. He's had three assists and two goals. He's got five points. Five points already. I'm like, <laughs> dude. Wow. Where'd that come from? Well, here's a little argument. So is it because of our system? I mean, he was... That Kyle Turris is not flourishing. He was hot players? when he came here. I know. Like before he came here. And guess what? And then he was stone cold. Stone cold. And now he goes <laughs> off to, I'm just saying. You but know what? Look at Mikhail Granlin. Comes down from the wild. He's a very hot player for them. Comes down to the Preds. Gets anchored with Wayne Simmons. <laughs> and just sluggish. You're not surprised. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised either, but it's like. It's a dead that, zone, That Kyle. again made me think about the system. It's like. You mentioned we've been talking about getting some identity. We're losing the team of the uh, identity of the team if we have some offseason moves. Well, you might want to find a little identity because what y'all have right now is a dead zone where peak players go to die. Like, well, like there's a trade rumor going on that apparently Subban's going to get traded for Malkin, which I think is not going to happen. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, that, that's not going to happen. Oh, well. <laughs> that is not going to happen. <laughs> and, I, and I don't get it. I don't understand people's like – hate of P.K. Subban. He's a good player. Sure, he's got a few antics. He does these things, but he's a good defenseman. I'm not going to lie. P.K. was an anchor in that uh, Dallas series. If you watched any footage, if he wasn't on the ice, that those series are drastically different. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, yeah, I, I don't... Uh, there, There's many advanced analytics that back that up, too. He was having some high, high Corsi ratings every single night, um, but I do think it, that was comical that um, Malkin would be thrown out there for a P.K. Subban. That would be a monster deal. Do not see that one happening. Though, we have argued, obviously, Matt Duchesne, and all, uh, Matt Duchesne came to Nashville the other day, uh, obviously tweeted about it, made it very evident that he was in Nashville, by the way, to uh, party for, um, I believe it was Riley's, um, was it Riley? I don't remember. It was his birthday? Anyway, Friend of his, they're coming to Nashville, and of course he has to like just poke the Nashville audience and all the fans out there that, hey, I'm here. Don't yeah, you want and everybody me? went crazy. It's like the courtship. Still, this is round three. Um, who knows? I, I don't know. They probably stayed in his apartment too that he bought in Nashville. You know, thus uh, remember when that was a big rumor too because he he had property here, which he does yeah, actually yeah. have property, but it's apparently like rental property, like an Airbnb. Yeah. So it's like, okay. So he stays here like twice a year when he comes in town. It, it's just funny. Um, it is a possibility in the offseason. Who knows what happens, but I did want to throw out the argument of the system 
and just that I, what if Matt Duchesne came here and is stifled too by our system? Is that like the all tell sign that we need to just start renovating some of the coaching staff? I mean, to be honest, I would say yes because yeah. Duchesne killed it in the playoffs. Small, I mean, granted he was only in the first two rounds, but absolutely was on fire. And arguably, if he went forward the next couple rounds, he's up there with Logan Couture as far as number-wise, uh, especially in the assist category. So if you think about that, if that happens in the offseason and we're still stifled with our offensive production, I guarantee you only a couple, you know, I think we'll get about 20 games in and you're going to start seeing some coaching changes because obviously we are keeping the coaching staff. Unfortunately. Per everything that has been said. So if the power play doesn't improve and you start to see players to struggle again, like say Kyle Turris lights up the world championships here, comes back, and then he's at zero again. I'm just saying. Good idea. It's probably the system. I'm thinking some people are going to be starting to part ways come about 20 games into the season. That's just my opinion. I, I, I think they've decided to keep the staff, but they are on a very short leash. So they better be ready come next season. And the rumor is the Preds are looking for a third assistant to help out with the power play because, let's be honest, it needs the help. Here's a question for the both of you. Say you're the GM of the Preds, and somebody says, I got a deal you can't refuse. Whatever player you want, and you have to give me one of your big 4D. Who do you trade? I'm giving Subban. Subban? But you, Daniel? Uh, who are we trading for? Just, you know, like, take, your, take your pick. Say so. I, I, I we're gonna get into this too. Well, in it just offseason we'll get because, into the offseason. Yeah, because it depends I have, on how much value you need for the guy you want. I have several. One, I've compiled an entire Excel spreadsheet. Oh, I'm aware that is interactive that we can play with. So we're gonna do like a GM episode where we can literally just get all the free agents and start tearing the, the roster apart. That said, though, split second decision. I, I would have to do PK traded to a Canadian team because he's not going anywhere else. That makes sense. To get Leon Dreisaitl. For me? 50 goal scorer. <laughs> if I had to get one of these players gone, I would keep Yossi and keep Subin. And I'd probably send Ellis because he'd be the easiest one to move. That is an interesting choice just because he's locked in for so long and you don't really know the return on the investment towards the end of that contract. But... I don't know. I mean, here's the deal. Also, we weren't expecting Fabro to be as good as he was this year and as solid coming in with only a small sample. I mean, he literally came straight from the NCAA, was in our roster, and he played really well. Yep. Uh, honestly, better than Dan Ham used to. So you're looking at him to develop into a Yossi-esque player. Yeah, because I'm, I'm expecting Irwin and Weber to not come back this coming season. Yeah, I mean, we... we definitely want the Dan Dante line you know that that's definitely going to be more of the bread and butter for our bottom third pairing this year but uh, I'm really interested to see his progression because if he keeps it up he has the potential to turn into a Yossi type style player the way he skates so there is potential for us to shop one of our top four defensemen as you said maybe to potentially get some more offensive power like a dry sidle uh, a Panarin out there who's going to be available. I, I mean, you, you got to think there's some crazy good players going to be on the free agency market yeah. this year. You're to Panarin. Um, uh, there's a bunch. Duchesne, I looked at it today, uh, actually. Most, just anyone in the Columbus Blue Jackets roster, just pick and one of them. I heard that the uh, restricted free agent class is this year is going to be the best it's ever been in history. Yeah, it, it, this is this offseason, Poyle has the pick of the litter. So – if he wants to make some moves, he's going to do it this offseason. I just hope he does not overpay. Because, you know, some GMs have a really bad history. Poyle's not one of those, but GMs generally tend to overpay in free agency. Yeah, the, the only good part is we're not trading, so we're also not losing future assets. Like, we still kept our first-round pick this year. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, those, those contracts are going to be big. But since there's a lot of people out there, you might still be able to get one for a reasonable price. And I say reasonable because some of these are going to be, you know, eight, nine million dollar contracts and up. But uh, it'll be interesting to see come the free agency. And I, I honestly think you might see a couple changes with Nashville Predators. So, Matt, do you have any stats or milestones we need to talk about before we shut everything down? 
Yeah, I got a few things to mention here. Uh, we talked about shopping D-men around, and I'll say a couple stats about the San Jose squad. Uh, Brent Burns is the first D-man to have 10 points in a series since 1994. And actually, Logan Couture's 48 postseason goals in the last 10 years. That's only Second, baby. two shy of Alexander Ovechkin. So uh, kind of sneaky good there. Uh, Couture kind of goes under the radar, but uh, he's up there with some big boys. And uh, since 2016, Logan Couture actually leads the NHL in points per game in the playoffs with uh, 1.13. And actually, five of the six top point getters in the NHL right now are all from San Jose. And Burns and Carlson are the first D combo to have 28 points in 15 playoff games since 95's Nick Lidstrom and Paul Coffey. And also interesting in the league, it has been uh, seems to be the talent is getting younger and younger these days. There have been 32 players aged 22 or less that have scored this postseason, and that's the most since 1992. And if you want to get into a little more news, actually, we mentioned uh, real estate pending uh, unrestricted free agent uh, Sergey Bobrovsky has actually put up his condo for sale as well in Columbus. And Pavel Datsuk has announced that his contract with SKA in the KHL is done and he might possibly return back to Detroit. He's flying back for a meeting or something, so they're going to talk that out. There had been discussion of him returning to Detroit under Ken Holland, but now that Ken Holland is gone, uh, we'll have to see what happens with that. And in addition, the Flyers have hired Michelle Therrien and Mike Yo both former head coaches in the NHL, to assist Elaine Vigneault in uh, Philadelphia. So they seem to be a powerhouse on the coaching squad. Uh, as much coaching changes as have happened this year, it's just crazy to see that. I, I, don't think I've, I don't know if I've ever seen two head coaches as assistant coaches. That's, that's just been crazy. Yeah, it's, it's quite the roster there. You're talking about coaches. So, you know, um, Q is down in Florida. They said Panarin might be wanting to go back down with Q. Oh, my mm, gosh. That would be nice. That would be crazy. But uh, the controversy keeps going, actually. This Buffalo Sabres have announced they hire a Ralph Kruger as head coach, and apparently that's a very controversial call because he's coming off of leadership in the English Premier League. That's not hockey, by the way. That's soccer. After quitting a five-year stint uh, – uh, sorry, he was in hockey five years before that, he actually has uh, an international coaching resume with uh, Switzerland and Team Europe, but very limited head coaching experience – uh, in the NHL with Edmonton just one year in a lockout year. And <laughs> I know that Sportsnet was talking to Brian Burke, former GM, and he said that these kind of uh, hires, these ones where outside guys come in, they usually don't work out. He gave a couple uh, of examples, and he said it's going to be really interesting because more times than not, these hires don't last and they go down in flames. So that's something. Well, uh, they only give Housley two years. Yeah, exactly. So how in the world is this guy supposed to do it? Like, I, I think he's just set up for failure. I mean, I, I don't know. And let's be serious. Does he might take Brian Burke seriously? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know. They're a dumpster fire in the front office right now, so. But I will end on a high note. I'll give a little hat tilt to my boy, Ben Bishop. This has been the first time since 1979 that a goaltender has had 50 or more saves and a 9.50 save percentage in a Game 7 and still lose. Yep. So that was pretty heartbreaking. That was, it, it was basically the best Game 7 performance by a goalie I've seen yeah. and still put up an L. In but like I mean, 30 years. Yeah, it, it was pretty pitiful. One side note, though. Um, today, actually, Bridgestone Arena and the Nashville Sports Authority Board announced a new 30-year lease proposal for the Nashville Predators, and we would be amiss not to just talk about it briefly. Uh, um, basically, it's locking in the Predators and the Bridgestone Arena through 2049. Let yep. that sink in that year. 2049, when was it? 2050. I am very old by this point. I am um, super old. I'm in my 50s. <laughs> well, this seems to be the bachelorette capital of the world, and it seems the National Predators organization has no commitment issues because that's quite a long-term deal. Yeah, so um, this actual deal is interesting because it's actually relieving Metro and taxpayers of financial yeah. responsibility. So we're actually putting more of the, the um, risk back onto the company, but the company is willing to take it because of how well – Nashville's economy is booming. And to be honest, I mean, I don't really see us going anywhere anytime soon with all the other, I mean, Amazon is coming to Nashville now too. You're, you're having major, the NFL draft just happened, by the way, yeah. and we crushed it. I, and we're about to build a, 
uh, an MLS stadium. So we're about to get professional um, soccer. We're also talking about a new football stadium eventually to potentially get a domed one for a Super Bowl and potential World Cup. I mean, that'd be crazy. Could you imagine hosting some World Cup games in Nashville? <laughs> That's kind of mind-boggling in itself. But um, it is very interesting to note that it does take the responsibility off some of the taxpayers and puts that risk back on the company. But in return, they are allowed to use those revenues and actually, you know, it, it's kind of like a good incentive because they're going to be able to book more shows that people want to see in Bridgestone. And on top of it, they're going to take that and use it for stadium upgrades and renovations. So I felt that so far Bridgestone's done a fabulous job at renovating it and keeping it fresh. It looks great. The arena still looks good. If you go to a game, I know it's been a little while for Matt, everything's renovated. All the concession stands are renovated top to bottom. I mean, even the nosebleed seats looks great. They've added all the fun, you know, twice daily sections in the arena. They just keep adding and making it fresh and more relevant. Well, from what this sounds like, they're talking about even stadium-like expansions and upgrades, which that's even mind-boggling in itself. Don't know how that's even going to be feasible or able to be done, but um, I'm pretty excited with this deal. I mean, obviously, it keeps our local team here for a long time. And I, I think it's a very win-win situation for both sides. So one thing I took away from this whole spiel was on Twitter, all the Preds press people were talking about how they were excited to have an actual press box because right now it's a press row. So they were all just really happy the fact that they're going to have an actual press box to sit in. Yeah, and they were hoping for their own bathroom as well. I saw that. Yeah, right now they use the public. So yeah. it's not the most ideal situation. But with things like this happening, it looks like, more upgrades are coming. Uh, I've heard rumors of a Jumbotron eventually, a new one. Um, that would be awesome because, I mean, look at Detroit's Jumbo. Oh, my goodness. Uh, what they did there with all the uh, under ice. So if you're sitting lower bowl, you actually have, like, scrolling uh, scores from underneath. It, it's impressive. It's a very nice Jumbotron. But I would love to see more upgrades like that. They started last year with, like, the LED ribbons. And uh, that looks really great. They did the uh, LED mansions um, come this year, yeah, and everyone yeah. was like, mind blown. I mean, but but it's it's stuff like that that keeps the fans coming, and the it just brings excitement to the organization. And to be honest, Bridgestone Arena is one of the busiest venues oh, super in, busy. in the world. I, I mean, so it made sense for them to do that, and they're going to take on more of the risk. They're going to relieve Metro from that tax burden, and uh, I think it's going to be a great partnership. Many, many years, I mean, I, I will be 50, um, probably taking my kids to Predators games before this lease is even close to ending. How crazy is that? Let that sink in. Yeah, well, you know, I'll be the same age. Actually, I'll be older than You'll you. You'll be the same age as you are yeah, now. Yeah, that's I'll amazing. Be same age, be older. Matt, how will you be in 2049? I don't know. Too old to count. Well, maybe, as Daniel said, we'll all be taking our kids there one day to watch a game. All together, all the little ones. Nice little hockey legacy in, in Nashville, Tennessee. Who would have guessed? And who knows? Our kids may be doing a podcast one day like we are. Uh, yeah, who knows what the technology is going to be by then, though. So I, I can't imagine 30 years because in 10 years, it is mind-boggling how much has changed. And I can't imagine in 30 years from now. So Yeah, from flip phones to iPhones. Yeah, and Matt, you know, we're, we're slowly catching him up on the technology, but he's getting there. Yeah. Next thing you need to get, Matt, is some Google Glass. Oh, yeah. It's next <laughs> on my to-buy list. You got it, Kyle. Well, guys, this has been Music City Gold on Penalty Box Radio. Thank you so much for listening. Before we close the show down, I will say that we are still giving our jersey away. We're going to keep pushing it until it's given away because at this point, we've not reached our 4,000 follower count, so you have to wait until the end of the playoffs, unfortunately, to get this jersey. But once the playoffs are over, we'll draw for it and we'll get it to you. Also, the winner of our bracket challenge, we'll get a $25 NHL item of their choice, Preds, Consolation Blues, Blackhawks, you know, whatever you want, we'll send to you. But you guys have a great week. We'll see you next time. Take it away, Rachel. 
You've been listening to Music City Gold on Penalty Box Radio, powered by the Ingram Agency. We'd love to interact with you on Twitter. The show can be found at Music City Gold. You can find Kyle at Kyle Hancock, Daniel at C. Dandrum, and Matt at MattBane31. Past episodes of the show can be found by subscribing to Penalty Box Radio on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at PenaltyBoxRadio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the ice.